Well, hey, everyone. As we get started today, just a quick heads up about the weeks and months to come. I've been preaching straight through January here because I'm going to be gone for a few weeks in February, taking some vacation time before the final push, and then giving the teaching team, the campus pastors, a chance to take the lead for a bit. But looking ahead, we have a lot to get excited about. Our journey through the Gospel of Mark is going to take us right up to Easter Sunday, which comes early this year on March 31st. Then we'll be holding a One Church Sunday on Sunday, May 12th at the Lowell Auditorium. Now, it's been several years since we've brought all the campuses together at one time and place, and this year feels like a great time to do that. If all goes well, we'll be able to welcome our new senior pastor and say farewell to good old what's-his-name. <laughs> so we will be live streaming it for the online campus, but if you're able, it might be a great time to be present in person. Tell you more about it as it gets closer, but we want you to mark your calendars. All this to say, we have a lot to be excited about as we work our way through these winter months and toward the spring, including this message that I'm excited to be sharing with you today. I'll never forget one of my earliest lessons in church leadership. It was my first year as a pastor. I arrived at our small Baptist church just outside New York City in July. Like a lot of churches in those days, we had a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service, and they were different services. The evening service was a bit more casual, no suits and ties. But we would still do just about everything we did on a Sunday morning, sing some hymns or praise songs, as we called them then, uh, make announcements, take an offering, and then preach a sermon, a different sermon from the morning. Now, in those early days, we were getting about 60 people on a Sunday morning, but in the evening, we'd be lucky to get 10 or 12 or maybe 15. It's a lot of work for what seemed like a relatively small impact. So after a couple of months, I proposed what I thought was a great idea to the deacon board. How about if we change the evening service to a home Bible study, where people would gather in a living room, have some snacks, study the Bible together, and pray for each other. Small groups were just becoming a thing in the church world, and it seemed like a no-brainer to me. What I didn't realize was that I had used a dirty word in that proposal. It was the word change. But we've always had an evening service, some of them said. I mean, that's where people really get discipled. I mean, who knows what crazy ideas people might come up with if they just open the Bible and share their thoughts. And how will we take the offering, they said. Uh, the elder statesman on the board was a man named Arthur, a retired banker as conservative as the brown suit he always wore. And he basically said, over my dead body. <laughs> well, Arthur was old, but he wasn't that old, and I didn't want to wait around till he went home to glory, so I made a second proposal. How about if we stick with the evening service for three months, give it our best shot, and if we can't give it to grow, we'll try the home Bible study for three months and see how that goes. The motion passed four to one. Good old Arthur. <laughs> well, we did our best for three months at that evening service, we never broke 20 people, as I remember. In January, we shifted to the home Bible study. And the first night, we had more people than we had ever had at an evening service. And we never looked back. So my first lesson in church leadership was that change is hard. It requires effort and risk. It often feels like loss. The loss of something familiar and comfortable and, and even meaningful. 
Now, we talked about change last summer in our Up in the Air series, you might remember. We said it's like flying between the trapezes, letting go of what's safe and familiar and reaching for something new and uncertain. So change is hard for anybody and any organization, but it's especially hard for churches. And I got to thinking about why that is. I think in part, it has to do with how deeply personal our church connections are. Church is where we experience and process some of life's most important moments, weddings, funerals, baptisms, dedications. The church is where important decisions are made, deep relationships are formed. So when those people or places or practices change, it's unsettling. On top of that, we find comfort in the fact that God doesn't change. His ways, His word are constant and steadfast. The world around us is changing all the time. Culture, circumstances, health, jobs, the weather. We have no control over those changes. But the church should transcend those ups and downs, right? And we want to preserve the places and practices that have been so important to us. So change is hard, especially for churches. The problem is that God is always doing new things. And we've been talking about that all year. God has been creating and recreating from the very beginning of time. Behold, I am doing a new thing, he says through the prophet. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? He's the God of fresh starts and new beginnings. And we believe he's doing new things in our lives and, and at Grace Chapel here in 2024. But those new things are going to involve change, and that can be hard. So let's turn again to the opening chapters of Mark's gospel, to the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. Let's see what we can learn about how and why God does new things. We're going to jump ahead to chapter 2 this week. We're going to find a marked change of mood from chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about the rising popularity of Jesus. People are amazed at his teaching and his miracles. They flock to him from all over Galilee, leaning in to hear him speak, lining up to be healed. By the time we get to the end of chapter 1, Jesus is so popular, Mark tells us, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Well, all that changes in chapter 2. Now, we know that the chapter divisions weren't there in the original text. They were added later, and not always in the most helpful places. But in this case, they got it right, because it's clear that Mark is signaling a change in the action. He wants us to understand that right on the heels of Jesus' popularity, there was a rising tide of opposition against him. I actually went back to my notes from that inductive Bible study course I took in college. And uh, you'll notice here, uh, I titled the section, Confrontation and Conflict. You'll also notice the one plus. So I actually got worse at this before I got better. But five times in this section, Jesus is questioned or challenged for his words or his actions. First, he pronounces forgiveness for a man who wasn't even asking for forgiveness and without any sacrifices being offered for his sins. Where does he get off forgiving people? The religious leaders grumbled. Only God can do that. 
Then he parties at the home of a crooked tax collector named Levi. The religious leaders are scandalized. What's he doing eating a meal with people like that? Then they find out that Jesus and his followers aren't fasting, like, like other spiritually-minded people. And we'll come back to that story in a minute. Next thing you know, the disciples are plucking grain as they walk through a field on the Sabbath, which sure looked like work to those leaders. And Jesus doesn't say a word to rebuke them. And then in the final episode, in the section, which actually spills over into what we call chapter 3, Jesus himself actually heals someone on the Sabbath, completely disregarding the traditional rules and regulations around that sacred day. And at that point, the opposition was so strong, Mark tells us, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And why did they want to kill him? Because he was trying to change things. He was challenging their traditional ways of understanding and relating to God. So like we said, change is hard, especially for religious people. And what we're, what we're going to learn here in Mark chapter 2 is that when God does something new, it always upsets the status quo. But why? Why is the disruption so necessary? Why was Jesus always pushing the envelope, challenging the existing state of things? Well, if, if we take a closer look, we'll discover that Mark has embedded the answer to that question right at the very center of this section. And with just a few words and a couple of vivid illustrations, Jesus helps us understand why disruption and upset are sometimes a necessary prelude to new and better things. So let's jump into the middle section here at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now it's clear from, from this question that, that fasting was considered one of the primary ways that people sought and followed God in those days. It's actually kind of interesting that these religious leaders lumped together followers of John the Baptizer with the Pharisees, since, since those leaders were no fans of John the Baptizer. But, but they're trying to make the case that fasting is what spiritually-minded people do, even if they're following a renegade like John. It's also interesting to note that the law only required fasting one day a year, the Day of Atonement. But devoutly spiritual people, like the Pharisees, had adopted the practice of fasting two days a week, from sunup till sundown, and, and, and making quite a show of it, by the way. But these Jesus followers aren't fasting at all, and Jesus doesn't seem to care. Now, it's not unlike the objections those deacons were raising when I proposed changing the Sunday evening service. For decades, serious Bible-believing churches had held Sunday evening services, and serious Christians came out to those services for worship and fellowship and teaching. Those deacons had had many wonderful 
spiritual experiences at those Sunday evening services. And they, they wanted other people to have those experiences. They couldn't imagine a church not having an evening service. And the truth is, there was nothing wrong with Sunday evening services, just like there was nothing wrong with fasting. They just weren't right for the times, for the new things that God was doing. That's pretty much what Jesus says in his response to these questions. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus doesn't question the value of fasting. He simply, simply points out that there are proper times for fasting, and this wasn't one of those times. The religious leaders had confused the means with the end. Fasting was simply a means for spiritual growth and communion with God. It wasn't an end in itself. You didn't become more spiritual by fasting. You became more spiritual by communing with God. And when God feels distant and in times of distress or distraction, fasting may be the best way to focus on spiritual things and commune with God. But when God was near and accessible as he was in Jesus, it was a time for celebrating, for enjoying his goodness and his nearness as Jesus and the disciples were doing. Fasting and not fasting were simply different means for pursuing the same end, a deeper relationship with God. And contemporary churches and Christians can often make the same mistake, confusing the means with the end or the method with the mission. We, we fall in love with our forms and our structures and, and we forget the purpose behind them. The mission behind the Sunday evening service was to connect people with God and with each other around the Scripture. But that mission could be accomplished as easily in a home as in a church sanctuary. And culturally, at the time, people were looking for a more relational, informal experience. They preferred sitting in a circle, facing each other rather than in pews. They wanted to interact with the Scripture themselves rather than listen to someone else who'd done all the work. It was simply a new method for accomplishing the mission of helping people grow in their faith. Uh, the church guru, Carrie Newhoff, offers a, a pointed warning here. He says, churches that love their methods more than their mission will die. Now, that sounds pretty ominous, but that's pretty much what Jesus says in the next couple of verses beginning at 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, you don't have to be a seamstress or a vintner to get Jesus' point. Old, worn clothing can't be patched with new, unshrunk fabric, or they'll both tear over time. Old, brittle wineskins can't contain new, fermenting wine, 
The effervescence will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skin will be lost. So by his words and his actions, Jesus was making clear that the new thing God was doing, the kingdom he was bringing, couldn't be patched on to the old spiritual system. It couldn't be contained by those old religious structures. And if people weren't prepared to embrace the new things God was doing, they risked losing not only those systems and structures, but the very faith they were meant to contain. When we insist on holding on to old, familiar forms that were fruitful in their time and refuse to be open to new and innovative forms that might be fruitful in a new time, we risk losing both the form and the fruitfulness. I've seen these metaphors play out in real life over the years, both positively and negatively. Let me share a story of each, and I'll begin with uh, the negative one. Uh, You've heard me talk many times of the wonderful church I grew up in, a vibrant, growing church that served hundreds of people in suburban New York and, and reached around the world with its mission program. At its height, it was the largest Protestant church in the county and a flagship church of the denomination. But you've also heard me tell how it began to falter when a new pastor was called. Not because the new pastor was unqualified or incompetent, but because he came with some new ideas and a different style, which which the congregation and leadership resisted at just about every turn. And do you know one of the main bones of contention? The Sunday evening service. The pastor wanted to put some of that energy into new things, but the leaders insisted that they continue the Sunday evening service as they always had. They even suggested going back to using the King James Version of the Bible on Sunday nights. After seven years, that pastor finally gave up and moved on. The church continued to decline, burning through one interim pastor after another. Eventually, they became so small, they couldn't pay the bills. So they moved out and put the building up for sale, as I shared with you a couple years ago. And just last week, someone posted this headline on my Facebook feed. Clarkstown moves closer to tearing down Grace Church. Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he said that both the wine and the wineskins would be ruined. Churches that love their methods more than their mission will die. It breaks my heart to have to share that story with you. Fortunately, it doesn't have to go like that. I'm remembering my first couple of years here at Grace when we finally got permission from the town to make some improvements to the four buildings we had here at 59 Worthen Road in Lexington. Now, the original plan was simply to make some improvements to those buildings and to make the connections between the buildings a bit more efficient, to literally patch them together. Well, in the end, the leaders recommended tearing everything down except the sanctuary and starting over. Now, talk about upsetting the status quo. I mean, these were buildings that had served the church well for decades. 
They were sacred spaces. People had met Christ and been baptized in those buildings. They'd gotten married there and dedicated their children and said goodbye to their loved ones there. Not only that, many, many of them had given sacrificially of their finances to build those buildings. The thought of tearing them down wasn't just sad. It almost felt sacrilegious. And by the way, who was this new pastor promoting the whole thing? But when decision time came, the congregation hardly hesitated to go ahead with the plan. As much as those buildings meant to them, if they were getting in the way of the new things God wanted to do with grace, they were ready to tear them down and build something better suited for the vision God had put on our hearts. On the final Sunday before the teardown, we handed out black Sharpie pens to everyone, told people to roam through those old buildings, find the places that were meaningful to them, and write on the walls what happened there. I gave my life to Christ here, or I taught Sunday school in this room, or I met my husband or wife or best friend in this hallway. Individually and collectively, we gave thanks to God for all those memories and all that fruitfulness. And the next day, the bulldozers and backhoes arrived and began tearing the place down. Those old skins couldn't contain the new things God wanted to do. It wasn't a time for patching. It was a time for starting over. Now, I take the time to tell those two stories. First, to illustrate the importance of being open to the new things God might want to do in this post-COVID world, in this post-Christian culture, in this hybrid space that is both digital and physical, and with the arrival of a new senior pastor. New times call for new forms and new ideas. I, I feel so strongly about this. We, we actually rearranged the preaching plan skipping ahead to chapter two this week, so, so I could preach this message and, and publicly endorse whatever new things God might want to do in the year and the years to come. Now, to be sure, certain things will not change. Grace Chapel will always be committed to the message of the gospel, which we talked about last week, and to the mission of spreading that gospel and advancing his kingdom here and everywhere. The elders, the search committee are safeguarding that mission and the values that make grace the church that it is. But the methods of fulfilling that mission and living those values will need to change with the times and leaders God raises up here at Grace. Some of those changes will upset the status quo. They have to, because some of those old structures and methods may not be able to contain the new things God wants to do. New wine calls for new wineskins. I also tell those stories to illustrate that Grace Chapel is the kind of church that has embraced change many times over the years. From one cultural moment to another, from one best practice to another, from one senior pastor to another. And I have no doubt that Grace will do that again. When God does something new, it always upsets the status quo. And I believe that's true in our personal lives as well as in our church life. 
If you decide to get serious about spending personal time with God each day, it's going to upset your daily routine. You may need to get up earlier or or rearrange your work habits or give up some screen time. If you decide to get more involved in the life of the church, it may add an evening to your week or complicate your weekend plans. If you choose to become more generous with your finances, it might cut into your spending or your saving habits. Those changes will likely feel uncomfortable at first. You might feel nostalgic for old ways. But if you want something new in your life, you'll probably have to let go of something old, something familiar and comfortable. But the new wine God offers is always worth it. As I was reflecting on this text and and, and preparing the message, I found myself remembering an obscure text from the Old Testament that I had shared with the staff a few years ago. It comes from the book of Leviticus, of all places, and on the surface of it, it seems to have nothing to do with modern times. In fact, it's so obscure and arcane, I had decided not to bring it up in this message. But then, I, I was having my devotions earlier this week, using the Encounter with God devotional that some of us use, and guess what obscure, arcane text showed up on Tuesday morning? Well, I took it as a sign, so I'm going to share it with you. It's from Leviticus chapter 6, and it describes the proper procedure for presenting a burnt offering to the Lord. The burnt offering is to remain on the hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. Well, that offering and the smoke rising from it represented the desire of the people to be in relationship with God. So it had to keep burning. But listen to the next verse. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must never go out. (laughs) Now, see what I mean about obscure and arcane? What in the world does this have to do with life and church in the 21st century? Here's what I find interesting and and relevant to our topic today. In order for the fire to be kept burning, the ashes of the old fire had to be taken away so they wouldn't restrict the flow of oxygen to the fire. And the removal of those ashes and the setting of a new fire was in itself a sacred act because it allowed the fire to burn continuously and never go out. And in a similar way, from time to time, God upsets the status quo in order to clear the way for a new fire to be lit. And if we refuse to let go of those old forms and those former fires, they can actually get in the get in the way of the new things God wants to do, the fresh fire he wants to bring to our lives in the church. I checked the date on my notes from that staff meeting, and it was January 15th, 2020. 
Two months later, COVID-19 hit and church as we knew it shut down. We talk about upsetting the status quo. All our old ways of doing things were brought to a halt. It felt terrible at first. Nothing was familiar. The future was very uncertain. But it forced us to innovate, to try some new things, to develop some new skills, to engage some new people. Now, I am not saying God sent the pandemic to reform the church. But I am saying that God used the pandemic and our response to it to clear the way for some new things. And here we are, a few years later, with a fresh fire burning in our hearts and a sense that God is about to do a new thing here at Grace. And I want us to be ready for it. And I mean that for our personal lives as well. My status quo is is about to be upset in a big way. And maybe yours is too. Maybe there's a change happening in, in your career or your family, or your health, or your faith journey. It may feel uncomfortable and unsettling for a season. But if we'll embrace it as a sacred act, it can clear the way for some new fires to be lit in our hearts. We sang a song earlier on some of our campuses. Because where there is new wine... There is new power, there is new freedom, and the kingdom is here. I lay down my old flames to carry your new fire today. So make me your vessel, make me an offering. Jesus, bring new wine out of me and out of us. What might happen in our lives and in Grace Chapel, if we were to make that our prayer, if we were to lay down any old ways, old ideas, or old experiences that might be getting in the way of new things, and then invite God to light a fresh fire in our hearts and in our church. That's what the folks being baptized at a couple of our campuses today are are saying. As they're lowered into the water, They'll be leaving behind old ways of doing life and relating to God. And then they'll be lifted out of the water to follow Jesus into the new things he's prepared for them. So as we bow in prayer now, why don't you take a moment and consider if there's something you need to lay down or leave behind. And then invite God to start something new in your heart and in our church. I'll give you a minute, and then I'll pray. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for as individuals, as a church. You've been good and faithful to us in so many ways over so many years. We thank you for all of it. But we don't want to get stuck in the past, Lord. We don't want to settle for stories and memories of the good old days. We want new experiences with you. We want to break new ground for the kingdom. We want new wine and fresh fire. May you bring it, Lord. 
And may you open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.